This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is matt chorley with a bonus episode of the times red box podcast obviously your normal wednesday episode you've got john captain and alice thompson picking over the news and pmqs unpacked from the house of commons but it's such a big day in politics in american politics but in world politics too donald trump leaving the white house so we say goodbye to donald trump so long farewell So I was playing that um, a lot on the show today and lots of people texting in with suggestions of what job Donald Trump should do now. But what we thought we would do in this bonus episode is I've spoken to all of the Times and Sunday Times correspondents right across America uh, about what it's been like to trail and report on Donald Trump for the last uh, four years. Really interestingly, with no coordination, they all chose different things, highlights, lowlights, that sort of thing, perhaps in part because... So much has happened. So uh, here they are then, reflections from Times and Sunday Times journalists, kicking off with Times US editor David Charter. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. My personal highlight was my first Trump rally, which was in Erie, Pennsylvania, um, where I sat with a group of loggers from upstate New York who really loved every minute of it. And I just got a a great feeling for the first time of how Trump connected uh, with his fans He was funny, he was rude, he said things no other politician would dream of saying. And the guys from New York just said, he talks like us. It was just a real night out uh, with support acts and music, like going to a rock concert. And the low light, personally, was just how awful the Trump media people were to deal with. Most of them ignored requests for information or to check things out, while at the same time crying fake news at every story. I would I would say Sarah Sanders, uh, as a press officer, did actually answer emails, but nobody has since. And we'd just get replies that literally said, off the record, no comment. There was just a complete breakdown uh, in relations with the media. David Charter there on the breakdown in relations between Donald Trump's team and the media. Now let's hear from Henry Zeffman, The Times Washington correspondent. For me, the moment which was most quintessentially Trumpian Uh, came in August 2017 during a total solar eclipse. Uh, It was the first one visible across America for 99 years. I was actually in the country at the time on a road trip with some friends and you couldn't move for protective eyewear being handed out wherever you went. There was a clear national message. Don't look directly at the eclipse. Which is, of course, what Donald Trump then did from the White House balcony. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that's what he did throughout his presidency. He refused to listen to even the most panicked official warnings. Now, look, at times, his outsider's individualism had success, uh, perhaps in foreign policy, for example, some of the deals in the Middle East that he struck in the final months of his presidency. But in the wreckage of the capital siege, I think it's hard to say that he might not have been a bit better off listening to what informed people were telling him at least a little bit more of the time. From Washington now to California, the US West Coast Bureau chief. This is Ben Hoyle. I got to Los Angeles in the summer of 2015, just as Donald Trump entered the presidential race. It seemed almost like a joke at first, but looking back, the signs were there. I think the first piece I ever wrote about Donald Trump was... uh, reporting on the, the, the very first Republican candidates debate. Uh, and he warned us there because within seconds of the start, uh, Donald Trump was the only one of the candidates who, when asked if they would support the eventual nominee for the party, raised his hand, 
leading to boos and cheers in the packed auditorium to say uh, that no, he couldn't guarantee that he would recognise the results of that contest and he might well go on to compete as an independent nominee if he didn't get the party's backing. Of course, he did end up as the nominee and the five years that followed have been a bewildering churn of hyper-accelerated news cycles that have been uh, extraordinarily disorientating to cover. Uh, so much has happened at such uh, whirlwind rates that uh, I'm fully aware that, you know, giant events that might have defined other presidencies have probably completely slipped my mind. Uh, it, it's not one of those giant events, but I only remembered yesterday that at some point, as president, Mr. Trump had found time to pick a fight with Meryl Streep, calling her uh, one of the most overrated actresses in the world. Heading to New York now then, Laura Pullman is the Sunday Times New York correspondent. There's so much for so many people to be angry or depressed or upset about that happened during Trump's presidency. But for right now, I can't help recalling how he provided, inadvertently, some glorious comedy over the past four years. And whenever you were convinced that the Trump reign couldn't get any more bonkers, somehow it always did. For me, it was the Greenland saga in August 2019 that really sticks in the mind. This was when the president expressed an interest in buying the country and said it was essentially a large real estate deal. Of course, this being Trump, it all descended into name calling and a cancelled trip to Denmark. <laughs> but boy, I remember laughing when that all came out. You know, there's a lot that I won't miss about Trump's America, but I'd be lying if I said that I won't miss just a little bit of the buffoonery and the bizarreness. And let's not forget, too, the sphinx-like ice queen that is Melania Trump, one of the most intriguing first ladies in history, and her batting away her husband's hands when he tried to show her affection in public. In New York for The Times, this is Will Pavia. The most vivid memory that I have of, of the Trump era is still really the, the beginning of it, the, the night that he was elected. The day before I went to a glass sort of convention centre on the Hudson River where Hillary Clinton was holding her election night party and I went to get accreditation and there was a long row of very efficient looking 20-somethings who were, were doing it, very processing people very quickly. And then I went to the Trump hotel or to, to a hotel in Midtown where the Trump where Trump was holding his party and there didn't seem to be anyone there and I, I knocked on the door and a rather harassed looking teenager answered it and he was wearing a sort of shiny suit and a day glow tie and he didn't know what was going on and there seemed to be chaos in the room behind him and suddenly another teenager shouted Kenneth Kenneth we've, we've got to put these chairs out and it seemed like there were two 17 year olds getting the room ready for the Trump party um, and that was really that's kind of spoke to how the Trump campaign had been. It had been this incredibly haphazard sort of operation, um, and almost charmingly so. And anyway, the, the, the night of the, the Trump party, that hotel room filled with sort of uh, apprentice stars. Omarosa was there. There were politicians. I remember Jeff Sessions being there. And also um, sort of strange kind of mixture of... Upper East Side kind of society people, um, a neighbour from Palm Beach, and then this sort of group of sort of young guys who were quite sort of in, in their marga hats, who were a bit more sort of frat boyish and, and were drinking a lot and shouting and cheering a lot. 
Um, and I remember talking to the wife of one of the um, secret service agents who'd been looking after Trump. And she told me that she was amazed at how nice all the media were because she'd spent a, you know, the best part of a year listening to Trump say how awful they all were. But there was also a moment when, when it, it became clear that Trump was going to win. And people were so stunned, especially on the, on the gantries of, of the American media. They, they, people, you could just see them just looking at the screen, just absolutely shocked. And one of Trump's lawyers came over and sort of shouted at them and went, hey, 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 why all the long faces over here? What happened? What's the matter? You know, really kind of enjoying himself. Um, and I think in New York as a whole, there was this sort of panic that we were about to go through a period of, of great turmoil. And the person that you would normally look to for leadership and for, for calm and consolation was the person that they thought was going to cause all the turmoil. And uh, this isn't really my story, but a, but a friend who was, who was a journalist who was there that night, she described to me later, she said she was, her head was spinning and she walked back through Times Square and she decided to get a coffee at a McDonald's. And there was a row of uh, homeless guys looking at the TV screen, sitting there. And when she sat down next to one of them, he looked, he sort of nodded towards the screen that said Trump elected. And he said, hey, we're screwed, right? Now let's head to Florida. Jackie Goddard is the Times correspondent in Miami. One episode that played memorably close to home for me from the Trump presidency was the gun massacre in February 2018 at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, South Florida. This is my local high school. So this was different to anything else I've ever covered as a reporter because this was my home turf. These were my people. And the way President Trump handled the shooting's aftermath and its political implications and some of its victims were uncomfortable. He came to meet the grieving families, some of them, en route to a golfing getaway in Palm Beach where he has a home. He went to one of the hospitals that had handled the casualties. 17 people were killed and 17 people were injured. And he posed up for pictures with doctors and nurses grinning. He was grinning broadly and he was doing a thumbs up to the camera. And then he did it again in another photo opportunity with first responders and police. It felt tone deaf. And that personal tone deafness became a kind of jarring hallmark throughout his presidency, that inability to be a comforter in chief. He did call at the time for certain gun reforms. He said he would stand up to the powerful National Rifle Association but within a couple of weeks, he had caved. And even in the face of further mass shootings, he became the NRA's biggest champion in exchange for tens of millions of dollars in campaign financing. And say what you like about Joe Biden and politics, but in a human sense, it's hard not to already feel hopeful about the change in tone in Washington, in that respect, at least. Biden wears his heart on his sleeve. He's that comforter in chief. He sheds real tears he hugs people and he knows tragedy and grief. Um, and he's no fan of the gun rights lobby. So things will be squaring up for quite a few showdowns on that front. All politics aside, humanity and compassion are returning to the presidency. And I think for a lot of people, that's golden. We're just touring the US and all the Times and Sunday Times correspondents who've covered the Trump presidency. Let's hear now from Josh Glancy, who's the Sunday Times Washington Bureau Chief. My highlight, or rather, the, I think the best aspect of the Trump administration has been its approach to China. 
I think when we look back in 50 years, uh, the way Trump changed American attitudes towards China, uh, elite attitudes towards China, particularly in Washington, D.C., will stand out as, as one of, if not the definitive aspects of Trump when all the madness and the tweets have long faded from memory. Um, things like Huawei, 5G, Belt and Road, this idea of seeing China as a strategic adversary, as a competitor, uh, and taking that competition very seriously. Now, this shift was already happening in, in Washington, D.C. and in America before Trump came into power, but he really bullied it along and catalyzed a real shift. And, and China competition is now one of the last bipartisan sentiments in Washington. It really across the political spectrum, people are feeling increasingly uh, adversarial towards China. Now, there are obviously concerns about that. You know, we don't want to end up with a, a cold or even a hot war. But I think it was overdue. And when you look at China's behaviour in recent years, you look at the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, you look at the way they've crushed Hong Kong and human rights in Hong Kong, you look at the pandemic, I think Trump's approach has been vindicated. Now, his tactics, the trade wars his failure to get a proper sort of European coalition working alongside him on China, his tactics have been flawed. But his attitude, his approach to China, I think has been vindicated and uh, is probably the best thing he's done. The low light of the Trump administration, well, we could be here all day. I mean, just the general childishness and petulance of the president is hard to forgive. Uh, the Capitol Hill riot, obviously... Will, will, will stay long in the memory as a stain on American life and on the Trump presidency. But for me, um, I think child separation at the border and the policy back in the su early summer of 2018 when they stripped children who were migrating over the border from their parents, which was so obviously cruel and so obviously immoral, but also the fact that once they reversed course on that, which was the right thing to do, uh, they then subsequently failed to reunite several hundred of these children, according to reporting, with their families. In fact, there may still be children who haven't been reunited with their families. Uh, this is sort of quite archetypal of the Trump administration. It's, it's cruelty matched with incompetence. Um, and one could almost forgive one, but to, to do both is, is an enduring theme of Trump's time in office and, and, and incredibly uh, unpleasant. And it really reached its apogee for me uh, when I was down in Texas watching interviewing mothers who who've been separated from their kids you know and, and the, the pain and the fear and the way they talked about that was just uh, something to behold so that was my low light the most memorable moment of the Trump administration there are so many uh, strange I mean it's been so wacky uh, for me I actually would go back all the way to November 2016 and election night I just arrived in New York to cover America I was on 6th Avenue standing outside Trump uh, the, the Hilton where Trump, the Trump victory party ended up being, standing outside Fox News and watching the shock, both on the Trump supporters and the rest of New York, or the vast majority of New York, just no one could believe it. Um, and that real visceral sense that you were in a, in a moment of, of deep historical change, it was like you were just at the top of a roller coaster, that gasp of breath before you plunge off it. Uh, and I'll never forget that night, traipsing up and down 6th Avenue, interviewing people. We were sort of cruising the whiskey bars of Midtown and just absorbing the, the shock and the horror and the fear and the jubilation that was the sort of dominant emotions among 
New Yorkers at the time. So that, I would say, is my most memorable uh, experience of the Trump administration right at the beginning. Finally, let's hear from Sarah Baxter, who's been covering the election campaign and its extraordinary aftermath for the Sunday Times. So, Matt, none of this is normal, but there were some memorable moments and chief among them were some pretty bizarre photo opportunities. Do you remember Theresa May visiting the White House and Donald Trump clutching onto her hand for dear life, descending down a ramp? Which, of course, reminds me of all those times that Melania used to flick away Donald Trump's hand whenever he tried to hold um, hers. How does that compare, I suppose, with that photo opportunity at a NATO summit where he literally shoved the premier of Montenegro out of the way in his desperation to push his way to the front of a photo with all the other uh, NATO leaders? But give Donald his due. A NATO summit, that reminds me that he did pressure European leaders into stumping up 2% or nearer to it for their own defence. And, you know, that was long overdue. So well done there, Donald. I suppose that's a highlight for you. Low lights. Well, I'd like to point to a moment in his 2016 election campaign that really presaged the despicable low point that came on January 6th with the storming of the Capitol. He was at a rally in Alabama and there was a black protester in attendance who was very roughly bundled out by security. And Donald Trump said, in the good old days, that man would have been carried out on a stretcher. And it was very clear what he meant by the good old days, the days before the civil rights movement. And it was a shock to me, because up to that point, I thought of Donald Trump as some sort of blingy New York businessman. And it, it, it was then that I really realized they had a lot in common with Southern leaders like George Wallace, the sort of populists of the day. And so I was less surprised then in 2017 when white supremacists marched in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Donald Trump said there were very fine people on both sides. That was horrendous and may have persuaded Joe Biden to run for president. But it was a real eye-opener, even for some of his own fellow travellers in the Republican Party. And some of the same people at Charlottesville were then at the storming of the Capitol, where, in my view, Donald Trump egged on the protesters, both because he had refused ever to accept that he had lost the election, kept complaining that it had been stolen from him without any evidence, which was a despicable thing to do, and then said, we're going to walk, we're going to march on Congress. And, of course, he then scooted back to the White House, leaving his supporters to rampage in a terrifying mob. What an end. And that was Sarah Baxter rounding off uh, the um, roundup of US uh, Sunday Times and Times correspondence. Uh, read them every day. Get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Click on a story. Put in your details. And a digital subscription is now free for your first month. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.